morning. It's good to see you all. Um, good to be back up here. Um, I believe the kids are dismissed the time, but the youth, I don't see it too many, but I guess you're staying with us. Um, this morning, we're continuing our series um, in Micah about walking humbly with your God. Again, the title of the series is just pulled from probably the most famous verse in Micah. Uh, but we're holding that title with uh, kind of the, the, the original meaning, right? What Micah is calling the people back to in that chapter is to, to do justice as God does justice. Like God is the arbiter of justice. Not what we say is just, but what God says is just, right? To love mercy gets to this idea of hesed. Do we love the way God loves, right? That's what it means. And then lastly, to walk humbly. And we, we've kind of identified humbly in the Hebrew and the, the Micah and the, the Old Testament. It's, it's shalom, right? So this idea of walking humbly with God is all-encompassing. It's not just about peace and right relationship between me and God. It's peace and right relationship and harmony between, yes, me and God but also me and creation, right? The world around me, my neighborhood, my city, my community. It's peace with my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my family, and it's also peace with myself. So this idea of walking humbly that we're asking throughout the book of Micah is what does it mean for me to be at peace with God? What does it mean for me to be at peace with the world around me, with my city, my neighborhood, my family, my community, my sister, my brother, myself? So this small little walk humbly phrase is, is a little bit more all-encompassing. And I think that's important for us to hold on to because as we go through Micah, this is a question I want us to be asking each week. What does it mean to walk humbly when we as God's people are unfaithful? What does it mean to walk humbly when, when, when God's judgment comes down? What does it mean to walk humbly when leaders, right, whether it's leaders in, in our families or leaders in our churches or leaders in, in our national scene, what does it mean when these leaders let us down? What does it mean to, to walk humbly when we see the rich getting richer on the backs of the poor while the poor are getting poorer and more oppressed? What does it mean to, to walk humbly when our leaders, our pastors, our preachers, our prophets, yes, when they violate God's law, what does it mean to walk humbly? So we began, we began last week in Micah chapter 1, and I said it was funny because in August, a lot of new people come and visit and look us over, and the kids are in the service, and to get the kids started, we said the very first chapter of Micah says what? Let's warn, let's weep, let's wail, right? Welcome children, let's do this together, right? But in Micah chapter 1, Micah is providing a warning. And we said that this is actually just a testament to God's patience, right? Because for 500 years, the people have broken covenant with God. They've turned away from God. They've worshipped other gods. They, they have not been faithful, yet God has been patient. And so when Micah comes onto the scene, he says, listen, we need to look at our sin and remember that we are sinning against God. And so for 10 or maybe up to 20 years, Micah preaches this message. Turn to God or destruction will come. Turn to God or our enemies will come. Turn to God or our enemies will come. Yet no one listens. But as we concluded Micah chapter 1, we said that we saw how Micah is calling us to look to God and to look to our sin. But when we look to God in our sin, Micah challenges us to weep, to wail, and to lament. There's so much and it's so easy for us to say, God, I messed up, forgive me, and then we move on. But what Micah calls us to see is that our sin directly affects our God. That, that when we truly know that we not just miss the mark, but we fall short, it not only breaks God's heart, but Micah's challenge is, does it break your heart to not be faithful to God? And so he calls us to lament. 
this morning we're going to be in chapter 2 and we'll be reading the whole of the chapter. But what's fascinating about this chapter is Micah has gone from, you know, kind of a history lesson to talk about the current story. So before he used the history to say, this is what we've done for 500 years, we need to turn. But now he's going to say, this is what we're doing now. Are we still not about to turn back to God? So this chapter then is about the people's corruption and sin. But as we said last week, Micah's always going to move us, right, for desolation and destruction, but also the construction and salvation, right? He's going to move us from peril to promise. So though this chapter is greatly about the people's sin and corruption, it ends with God's faithfulness. And I think there's a word for us there, too. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 2. I'll be reading the entire chapter starting at verse 1. Um, as we said last week, Micah's pretty heavy, so put your seatbelt on. We're going to get right into it, right? Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. This grace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord, or subtranslation says, does the spirit of the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Hear that again. Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without care. Like men returning from battle, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away. For this is not your resting place because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with the people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. The king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. In Micah chapter 2, we see the prophet has moved from prophesying about the past to preaching about today. And in so doing, he moves from warning of what might come to an indictment of what we've done. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much that we can come to you. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for the sins that we've committed, for how we've fallen short, for good we've left undone, for how we've oppressed and held up oppressors. 
for how we've broken shalom, peace with you, peace with creation, peace with ourselves, even peace with our brother and sister. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you who spoke the world into existence now stoops down to hear our prayers. And so we come before to you, Father, asking for forgiveness and relying and trusting on your mercy, your grace, and your love. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you that you see us. You see us even if we're far. You see us even when we can't hold on. You see us in our struggle, in our pain. You see us in our trying. You see us in our walking. You see us in our running. Holy Spirit, you see us. We thank you that there's a comfort in being seen by you. Because that comfort calls us back home. So Holy Spirit who sees us, we pray now that you take us and bring us back home that you convict us, and that you transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, that you lead us, that you guide us, for you're the one who makes our path straight. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we thank you, not only for the salvation that comes on Calvary's tree, but the salvation that's afforded us today. For those of us who are struggling, for those of us who are battling, for those of us who see no way, for those of us who don't know no way, for those of us who have nothing else, for those of us who are weak, addicted, humbled, Lord, you see us and you save us. So we ask upon you and call upon your grace and your mercy and love to rescue us, to redeem us, to bring us back home. In your holy and precious name, amen. In Micah chapter 2, we said that the, the prophet has moved on from not just giving warning, but an actual indictment. In the, the first chapter, when he's prophesying, he's saying, because of the sins of the past, because of what we've done as leaders, because of what we've done as people, God's judgment is coming. But when we get to chapter 2, it's not just a history lesson of everything that's happened, right? It's not one of those things where you can be like, well, they did that. It doesn't really affect me, right? Micah goes into preaching, and what he's preaching is about today. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but the Google teaches me that an indictment is a formal charge or accusation of a serious crime. So Micah, in the first chapter, is going to say, I'm going to give you the history of how we ended up here. But then I'm also going to tell you what we're doing today. And I think that's helpful for us because it made me wonder this week as I was praying and preparing for this lesson is that if we have prophets today and they give us a history lesson about our Christian nation, what would they have to say? What would they say are the sins of our past that we're still walking in that we need to be aware of God's judgment? Because they, like Micah, might see our country that was built on land that we stole. They, like Micah, might see our country where the rich seems to be getting richer and richer and the poor seems to be getting poorer and poorer. But I also wondered what would happen if we had prophets like Micah who would look at Christians in this nation and say, this is where you fall short. This is where you miss the mark. This is where you haven't been faithful. This is where you have not followed your God. In chapter 2, Micah is going to make these formal ch charges. But again, while he's going to be real, while it's going to be painful, he's going to move them from pain and peril to promise because he's going to end this chapter with a reminder that though we fall short, though we miss the mark, though we not only oppress, but we benefit from oppression, though we put ourselves first and not our sister and brother and certainly not our Christ, though we fall short and listen to people who aren't worthy of our God, 
and are led by people that we uphold and make profits. Though we fall short, our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. In chapter 2, he begins with woe to the wicked. Destruction shall come upon the wicked who will reap what they have sown. He begins by saying, woe to those who plan iniquity, who plot evil, and who have the power to do so. Woe to you if your life is characterized as people who stay up at night thinking and dreaming of how they can get richer and not how the kingdom can expand. Woe to you if you are doing evil for your betterment on the backs of your sisters and brothers. Woe to you if you're using your power and your privilege to oppress or even to be blessed, right? I think that's something we have to hold on to because we're very good. We're very good at maybe acknowledging our privilege, but the challenge of God's people is to use every blessing to you be a blessing. It's to use every gift to you being a gift. So it's not just about acknowledging where we have privileges and blessings, but are we using those things for the kingdom come? And for some of us, that might mean sacrificing our privilege. But for all of us, it means that are we taking these things of God and giving them back to God for his kingdom come? Because what Micah saw was God's people who instead of taking their blessings, being content with their God, but who are using their privilege and their power to take away from their sister and brother. He talks about how they coveted and then seized the fields and the houses of the least advantage. Now, if you're all biblical scholars, you'll remember the Ten Commandments, right? You'll remember that when Moses gives God's law to the people, when God gives his law to Moses for the people, there was a law in there that says what? Thou shalt not steal. But more than stealing, or in addition to stealing, there was also laws against coveting what belongs to your sister and what belongs to your brother. And I think this is beautiful because a lot of times we teach about Jesus, we say, well, Jesus changes things because he introduces a new way of doing. Whereas the Old Testament focuses on our actions, Jesus cares about our mind, right? Jesus will not say, don't just murder, don't even think bad about a person. But Jesus is God's son. And there's nothing new under the sun, right? So what Jesus says is what he learned from the Father, or Jesus and the Father are one. So you'll see the same thing in the Old Testament. Because when God calls us not to covet, he's not just worried about our actions. He's not just worried about you going out and stealing something. God wants your mind too. Because God knows that if you're coveting, right, you're not content, if you're coveting, you want more that doesn't belong to you, or you want more that, that's not yours to have. And if you lose your mind and you start coveting, what you covet will go from desire or want to need. And the danger of us being humans is that when covetousness or what we covet moves to need and we have power and privilege to take, we take. We take. And if we put it in light of our country and our setting, we'll see that we need it or, or wanted freedom. And most people come to this country for freedom, right? But we took that freedom that was a want or a desire, and we made it a need, and we took. And we took land that wasn't ours. And we enslaved our sisters and brothers. And to this day, we uphold these political powers that keep oppressing the people who are marginalized and oppressed. 
and the least of these that Jesus calls us to love. When we go against the law of God, we move from not just our actions, but we lose in our minds. And we lose in our minds, we go against what God calls us to do and who God calls us to be. And the same thing is happening in the time of Micah. People who were rich weren't content with being rich. So what they would do is they would stay up at night scheming up plans to seize the fields and the houses of people. So not only were they breaking God's law by stealing and breaking God's law by coveting and taking, but they were violating the covenant of God. And we've stressed this before, but this is important for us to hold on to. Before the people of God, in the Old Testament, the land was their inheritance. And this wasn't just, I will take you to the promised land, right? And you will be in your own country. Every single family got allotted a portion of land. And, and, and even in the, the law, they had this thing called Jubilee, that even if you didn't use your land right or you didn't have a good investment in your land and you lost your land at the year of Jubilee, guess what happened? Your land was returned back to you. The land was their physical reminder that God loves me. God is here for me. God will provide for me. So this land wasn't just, oh, they lost some property. It was being stolen from people, this inheritance that God had given them. And so for you as a rich person, to take over the land of a poor person, you were violating God's covenant. You were telling them that your love of God and God's blessing of you isn't enough because I can take it away. So you can see how this would be egregious to our God. By defrauding people of their homes and their inheritance, people with political power were using their richness to basically steal from the poor. Now, I love that there's nothing new under the sun, right? So one of the things in our, in our country that we like to think that, like, we really like to think that we invented stuff, right? Like, even this idea of democracy, we're not even 400 years old, and we swear we're, like, the greatest democracy ever. We didn't invent anything, right? If anything, Thomas Jefferson was in France and stole some of their ideas that he didn't really believe in, but he just said it sounded good on paper, right? That's the best we can do. We did not invent democracy. And one of the most fascinating things is that even our setup now, where we vote for people and we elect them, right, and we put them in office and they rule over us, that's not new either, right? Like our founding fathers didn't make up that either. In fact, it's even in the Old Testament times. Right? You can go to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and you'll see within the law that God made it possible that the people would choose their elected officials who were supposed to look out for them. And what were some of the things they would pick people for? Who was wealthy, who was influential, who had some kind of military background or, or training, or, or, or who had some kind of expertise. Now, when I look at our Congress, that expertise part is a little shaky for me, but I'm working on it. You know, I don't know if we always have expertise there. But generally speaking, they would pick these elected officials who would be the assembly. And this assembly was supposed to what? Work on the betterment of everyone. But just like our Congress, their assembly would have lobbyists, right? And the lobbyists would be at the work of the rich people. And they would go into these assemblies and say, listen, I will give you a little extra land if you let me have this person's land. I will give you a little extra sheep if you let me have this. They would lobby the political power in the assembly to steal from the poor. Same thing that we've done in this country too. We didn't invent it. We just keep doing it. But what's fascinating is that God is putting this on Micah's heart. 
And I think what's important is that we miss this because we don't have this story. Maybe I didn't have this story in Sunday school. Maybe you did, right? But what, what I think is in the background of all this isn't just that the rich are taking advantage of the poor, that the rich are, are breaking the backs of the poor, is that when they went to synagogue school, yes, I said synagogue school, so they didn't have Sunday school. Philip reminded me of first service because the Sabbath is Saturday. I was like, I know, Philip, but they didn't have synagogue, they had synagogue school anyway, right? But when they went to synagogue school, they would have heard the story of Naboth and Ahab, right? If you haven't heard this story, I want you to go home today or, or this afternoon and read 1 Kings 21. This is a fascinating story because it's not just what the people are doing. It's what everyone is doing, even their leaders. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom. He had his office or his, his palace in Samaria. And as the king of the northern kingdom, he had access to everything. Yet he looked over and saw this vineyard that belonged to a man named Naboth. Naboth was from Jezreel. He was a local man. He was a man of God. He was in God's kingdom. Ahab shows up and says, hey, listen, I have great plans for your vineyard. So I need you to give me this vineyard because it's close to my palace, and, and it just works for me, and I will give you an even better one. But you see, remember what we said about land. The land wasn't just their possession, it was inheritance. It was a reminder that God loves me, God sees me, God's gifted this to me, not just for me, but for the generations to come. So Naboth looks at the king in the eye in all his power, and Naboth says, I can't do it. I cannot give you this land because it's my inheritance for my generations to come. And Ahab listens, and he goes home, and he's sulking, and he's angry, and he's mean, and he's not eating anything. So his wife, Jezebel, sees this. Remember that name, Jezebel? Yeah, you've heard of Jezebel. Jezebel sees this, and she's like, what's going on? He goes, I want Naboth's vineyard, and he won't give it to me, and I, I just can't eat. I can't do anything anymore. And Jezebel says, wait a second. Aren't you the king of Israel? Aren't you the king of Samaria? What's wrong with you? And she hatches this plan. She writes a letter to the elders of Jezreel and the assembly of Jezreel. Remember what we said we do with the politicians, right? She writes a letter to people in power. She said, I want you to have this ceremony. And at the ceremony, I want you to put Naboth front and center. And on his right and on his left, I want you to put people who will lie on his name and says he's cursed the king and he's cursed God. And I want you to rile them up so much that they kill him. And guess what happens? She gets the letter. They open the letter. They read it. They have a special ceremony. They put Naboth front and center. They put the two accusers on the right and on the left. They lie on his name. And then they take him outside the city and stone him. And after that, they get word back at the palace. And Jezebel goes, listen, didn't you want Naboth's land? And Ahab is like, yes. He's like, well, he's dead. The land's yours. I think it's fascinating because if you want to be gracious, and I think we should be gracious, you give a slice of grace and say that maybe at this point Ahab didn't know about the plan, right? Maybe he didn't know about the plan. He didn't agree with the plan. But he sure walked in the privilege of the plan, right? And that's a challenge to all of us to not just acknowledge our privilege, but to realize that, like, are we benefiting off that privilege when our sisters and brothers are not? Who has died so we had the opportunities that we have now? Right? Who have we taken from so that I can have more? And so that's what happens here is that instead of saying, oh, my goodness, what have you done? You've sinned against God. He says, oh, wait, he's dead. That land is mine. And he goes and he takes the land. And everything was great until Elijah comes. And when Elijah shows up, he says, oh, my enemy has arrived. Right? Imagine, I'm so glad when I walk into church, y'all don't say, oh, great, my enemy's here. feel better with myself already, you know? And that's how he greets Elijah. Elijah says, Naboth, God has seen what you've done. God has seen what you've done. 
And because of your sin against God, God will humble you. Now, remember what we said about Solomon, right? When you became king, God commanded you to do certain things. Number one, do not marry other wives that will turn you away from me. Do not covet and steal and take more than what I've given you, right? Do not worship other gods before me. Ahab, like Solomon, did all three. Worshiped other gods, turned from his God, stole from people like Naboth, stole from the poor, took more than he did. And God sends Elijah to say, I will humble you. And in the story, Ahab actually sees the light and he rips off his clothes and he mourns and he wails and he laments. And God forgives him. But there's another lesson in Ahab is that there's still consequences for our actions. So while God forgave Ahab, the sin had consequences, and the consequences came in this judgment that we're seeing here in Micah as well. So God is saying all this to Micah to say, listen, y'all, those who are proud will be made low. Those who have risen up to, to reap destruction on people will be made low. Those who have insiders and use their political power and their privilege to move on, they will have no one in that assembly who will stand up for them. They who are using their power to oppress will lose it all. And not only will they lose it all, they'll lose it all to their enemies, right? The Assyrians are going to come. God will humble those on high. Woe to you. And then he turns to the false prophets. And this is tricky to preach as a pastor, right? And I was reading this and I was like, whew, I don't know if I want to preach no more. You know, it seems to be a little bit of a higher standard here. But as I started searching and reading the passage even more and more, I realized that God does not miss. <laughs> and God is not just speaking to those of us who get up front and preach, right? God's speaking to all of us. Because here's the thing, we all represent our God. In our world. Wherever you are, if you believe in Jesus, you belong to Jesus, you represent Jesus. Right? That's the first layer of it. But here's the second layer that I missed until this week. Is that not only is Micah pronouncing woe to the false prophets, he's also pronouncing woe to those who prop them up. And I want us to hear that, right? Because it's not enough to say, oh, that person's a false prophet, or that person is preaching a, a gospel that's not true, or that person is not faithful to God. They can be false. Anybody can get up and lie. But they're only a prophet if we make them a prophet. They're only significant if we make them significant. So I don't care what you listen to on the radio, what you watch on the TV, what you read on Facebook, what you read online, who are the prophets that you're listening to? Because you are the one who's helping prop them up. Now, it's not enough for you to be like, well, I just read that to be balanced, right? Because that prophet isn't balancing you. They're forming you. That prophet isn't giving you a new perspective. They're giving you their perspective. That prophet isn't pulling you into the kingdom. They're kicking you or pushing you out of it. Who we listen to, who we prop up is just as important. So to Micah, it's not enough for us to be like, oh, these people are false prophets. Micah is saying, you have false prophets too. Why are you still listening to them? Why are you still submitting to them? Why are you still making them important, right? Because here's the thing, right? In the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, just like today, these false prophets were aligned with the kings and the rich. So if you see a false prophet or you're looking for a false prophet, just see who they're aligned with, right? Are they aligned with the marginalized? Are they on the front lines with the oppressed? 
Are they on the front lines with the poor? And on the front lines of what our scripture calls the least of these, the hungry, the poor, the jailed, the enslaved, the immigrant, the stranger, is that who they're online with? Or are they aligned with the rich and the powerful? Are they fighting to get before the presidents and the prime ministers and the kings and queens? Are they fighting with the people on the outside? Prophets of old and prophets today were aligned with the kings and the rich. But God's prophets and God's people are called to be countercultural. They're called to be aligned with God. Because if you're aligned with God, you can't be aligned with people who oppress. If you're aligned with God, you can't be aligned with people who are getting rich off the backs of poor people. If you're aligned with God, you can't be aligned with people who are drawing borders and telling you who's in and who's out. If you're aligned with God, you have to be countercultural. Those prophets of old valued their reputation over their actual report. And here's the thing that Micah says that stands out in verse 7 and 8. When we align ourselves with these prophets who are false, we are more focused on our reputation than what we're actually doing. When we're not aligned with God, woe to us because we miss God's faithfulness. In verse 7 he says this, You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the spirit of the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? If we align with the world or with the power, we miss God's faithfulness. But the woes continue. And next, Micah pronounces woe to people who rob, who steal, who ruin, who defile. The land was the people's inheritance. But more than their inheritance, their land was their sustenance. Now, for those of us who live in cities, and I know we're in Harrisburg, so people are like, are we really a city? Yes. Yes, we is. We is a big city of maybe 50,000, sometimes. But the thing is, we're way more removed from the world, we're way more removed from the land than the rest of the world. Most of us don't have to go to the river to get water and then boil the water to drink. Most of us can whip out these smart devices, hit a few buttons, and food, hot food can get delivered right there, right then and there. Most of us don't have to go out hunting for our meat, for for game, for dinner tonight, right? We aren't as reliant, or we don't think we're as reliant on the land as people who have to do all those things. But it's a reminder that in Micah's time, to take people's land was to steal their means of God's grace, but also their means of living. The closest I can come up with was after uh, the Civil War. In the South especially, there was a lot of African-American families who were sharecroppers. And, and as a sharecropper, they were dependent on the land for sustenance. This was land that they had earned, that they had fought for, that they were enslaved, and they, they got money together to, to buy. But they were still at the whim of richer white landowners. And so just like the people in Micah's time, like, they didn't know what the harvest would bring. They didn't know how much rain they would get. They didn't know what the crops would do. And, and sometimes they would have to make these deals just for survival. They would make these deals that, like, if the crop comes, you get this much. And when the crop didn't come, what did the rich landowners do to sharecroppers? The same thing God's people were doing to Micah's people. They would take their land from them. And I think we've lost this idea of how land is sustenance. But I think... When we think about what is God's means of grace to us, 
And how does God sustain us? I think we can find a peace of holding on to the love of God. Because that is our sustenance. And we know that because how Micah ends the chapter is not just with peril, but with promise. Because Micah promises at the end that though we have been unfaithful, Though we have been oppressors, though we have stolen from the poor, though we keep letting the rich get richer, though we keep upholding these false prophets, though we've been unfaithful, praise God because God is faithful. And he ends by saying, I want y'all to know that despite all of this, God will deliver us as a shepherd. I want y'all to know that God will gather and bring together those who have been faithful and that is a beautiful message, not just the people of Micah's day, but to us too. That when the world is out of control, God sees us. God's bringing us back home. God's taking us in. And I think Micah has Psalm 23 in his mind. I think he learned that in synagogue school too, right? Where David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I will not want or desire or lack anything. And David, like Micah I think here too, is reminding us, that not only will God gather and bring us back home, but like the sheep only has the pen, like the flock only has the pasture, we at God's people only have our home in God. And I think that's beautiful because in that home is a God who will protect us, who will provide for us, who will look after us. Because we make our homes so many things, and some of them are good and some of them are not so good, but we make our homes our family. We make our homes our spouses. We make our homes our, our jobs, our careers, our, our bank account, our health, our, how good we think we look. We make our homes in all these things. But here's the truth. They will all let you down. If you have health today, you may not have health this afternoon. If you have a job today, you may not have a job tomorrow. If you remember you have a Ph.D. today, 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, you may not be able to say your name. All these things will fail you except your God. What are you willing to make your home in? Is it in your job, your career, what you have, what you don't have? Are you willing to make it in your God? Because that is the only place we will know home. And then he ends with what I think is the most hopeful verse that we have seen yet. And it's the very last verse in chapter 2. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord is at their head. I don't think Micah knew that he was talking about Jesus. But Micah is talking about Jesus. And if you're not sure, in a couple weeks when we get to chapters 4 and 5, you'll see Micah more explicitly talking about Jesus. But what Micah did know is that God will deliver us as Savior, that God will make a way. No matter if you feel far from God this morning, no matter if you're struggling this morning, no matter if you feel like no one loves you, no one hears you, no one sees you, no matter if you feel like this addiction is too strong, no matter if you feel like your family can't hold on, no matter where you are, our God will make a way. No matter how much you struggle, our God is near to you. And he says that I will lead you by going through first. That's one of the reasons we can hold on to our Jesus, because there's nothing we face that he hasn't defeated. He has faced loneliness. 
He has faced need, right? Think about that for a second. The God of the universe spoke the world into existence, but was hungry and tired and frustrated and, and, and mad and, 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 and angry too sometimes. But our God promises to deliver us as Savior. I think for a lot of us, we think of God saving us just about what happened on Calvary's tree. And I think that's important. That's the entry point for most of us, right? Until I give my life to Jesus, until I confess my sins and say, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I give my life to you. But God's salvation isn't just what happens on Calvary's tree. God's salvation is afforded to you today. For those of us who are far, this is the message to come home. For those of us who are broken, this is the message to say, let God make you whole. For those of you who can't hold on, this is God asking you to let go and let him hold on to you. For those of you who feel like the addiction is too strong, the pain is too deep, the sorrow will not heal. This is God saying, come home. Trust me. Salvation is afforded to us today. And that's the message of Micah. We can be unfaithful. We can be oppressors. We can fall short. We can miss the mark. We can be far. We can be uh, uh, riddled with all our struggles. But God is still our shepherd. And God is still our savior. And God is still saying, come home. Amen? I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah and the worship team. Um, and any other pastors in the room as well, uh, please come up. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe there's something in the service you want to respond to or something you have going on in life that you need prayer for. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, but we'll be singing a song that we've sung many times before, speaking about building our lives. And, and as we sing this song, I want you to kind of go back to that original question of Micah, right? What does it mean to walk humbly with my God? So whatever you have on your mind, whatever you're battling with this week, whatever you're struggling with this week, Ask that question, what does it mean to walk humbly with God in this? And I think this song gives us a little bit of an answer that if we're willing to build our life on Jesus our Christ, if we're willing to be filled by the Spirit who fills us up and sends us out, and if willing to let God and the love of God be our foundation, we can not only go forth, but we can go forth to build the kingdom together. Let's stand and sing together.
for um, a bunch of us who grew up in church or who've been doing this church thing for a while, we know that at the end, or we hope at the end, that the Lord Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we look forward to that day. But I think the message of Micah chapter 2 is that before you get to that part, you have work to do now, right? And the message of Micah is that we will reap what we sow, not just the well done and good faithful servant at the end, but that in this life, the decisions we make, the thoughts we think, the things that we do will have an effect. We reap what we sow. And the, the message here, Micah, is that we are going to be accountable for who we follow. We're going to be accountable for who we listen to, who we let form us, and who we let shape us. But the promise in Micah is that though we fall short, Though we are inadequate, though we are broken, though we are trying, though we are addled and addicted, our God is our shepherd. 
And our God promises to not only love us, to not only sustain us, but to protect us and to provide for us and to bring us to rest. And Micah also reminds us that our God is our Savior, not only on Calvary's tree, but even right now. With whatever we're struggling with, whatever we can't hold anymore, we can place at the Lord's feet, knowing that our God will go through, that our God will go through first, and our God will lead us through too. Amen? Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We thank you so much that though we fall short, though we sin, though we miss the mark, though we left so much good undone, Though we put ourselves first and not you and not even our sister and brothers. Though we, we, we benefit from our, our blessings without remembering you, the one who blessed us. We, we, we have so much that you've gifted us, Lord, without remembering that we are to use those gifts for your kingdom and your glory. Lord, we ask for forgiveness. And we thank you that forgiveness comes to anyone in this room who hasn't made that decision to say, I believe in Jesus, forgive my sins, and I choose to follow you today, Lord. We pray that the, that the Spirit may come upon them to convict them of sin, but to also welcome them home, to know that through that confession with their heart and mouth, that they can come home today. But God, for those of us who've made that decision, but who, if we're honest with you this morning, are struggling. We're lonely, we're addicted, we're depressed. We're fighting for ourselves and we're fighting so much and not knowing if anyone sees. For those of us who feel undervalued, marginalized, oppressed. And for those of us even who are benefiting from things that we haven't earned. Lord, we ask for forgiveness and thank you, Father, that your grace and mercy finds us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you see us. You see us not just trying. You see us when we fall short. You see us when we don't live as we should be living. But instead of simply convicting us, you convict and call us back to you. And that if we're willing, you transform us into the image of Jesus our Savior, Lord Jesus our Christ. We thank you that you promise to go before. That you promise to make a way that you promised to hold us, to provide for us, to protect us. Lord, whatever we're going through that's so overwhelming to us, we thank you that you've seen it before, that you've healed it before, that you've carried it before, that you love people through it before. So help us to know, Lord, no matter how far we feel, you are always near. No matter how broken we feel, you're the God who heals no matter how unworthy we feel, you're the God who loves us and chooses us. So Lord Jesus, our Christ, we pray that as we depart to leave, as we get ready to leave, Lord, we pray that we may remember that you are indeed our shepherd, but you're also our savior. Lord, rescue us today. Lord, redeem us today. Lord, fill us up today. And as we go out with your love as our firm foundation, help us to love you and to love one another. In your holy and precious name, God, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.